How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. She, she died. She just slipped away. But her spirit is the important thing, and Misery's spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! Welcome to Now Playing's review of Misery. Would you have dinner with me tonight to celebrate Misery's return? Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I've got all his books. Every sentence he ever put down. Hosted by Arnie. I thought you were good, but you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. Stuart. You're beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world. And Jacob. I'm your number one fan. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Everybody talks like that. They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn. Listener discretion is advised. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Today, we're talking about misery, starring James Caan. Kathy Bates, directed by Rob Reiner. This is your dirty birdie, Arnie. Ed Stewart. There's only three divine things ever in this world. Misery's Child, the Sistine Chapel, and me, your co-host, Jacob. <laughs> Happy New Year! Almost. We're rapidly approaching a new decade, and what better way to ring it all in? But with our last Stephen King podcast of 2019, it's kind of been a big year for going back to King. And tomorrow we'll start the 30th anniversary for Misery, coming out in 1990, and in the past 30 years, or really since Carrie came out in the 70s, Misery is the only Stephen King movie to win an Oscar in one of the major categories. Shawshank Redemption? Nope. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I did get overshadowed. Forrest Gump took everything that year. You know, we are now rounding up to... 60 installments in this franchise. We're that high? Yeah, 60 Stephen King movies or spinoffs. You know, maybe we shouldn't blame him for Mangler Reborn. Yeah, Corn 2 through 11. <laughs> yeah, the, some of that work is bastardization, but you get my point. It's a lot of movies based in part on what he's written, second only to Marvel as our biggest franchise. I don't know. How's it been going for you guys? Has it been misery? It's been hard. Yeah, at times it's been hard. We, we've broken it up, though. And I'm excited to come to this one because this is where I started with King. This was the first King novel I ever read, probably because of that Oscar buzz. I've actually really enjoyed it. Even the bad ones, with the exception of the middling Children of the Corn, where it felt like I was taking a cut through a cornfield. I got lost, and I didn't know if I would ever be found again in that corn. I literally felt that way during the Children of the Corn series around mm. the time Michael Ironside showed up. <laughs> Will you get out of this retrospective alive? <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, even the bad movies... I've enjoyed seeing because I've enjoyed reading the short stories, reading some King I hadn't read before, researching it for Books and Nachos, which is coming back this year, I'm happy to announce. Okay, cool. And seeing how they try to interpret it to the screen, be it a Bollywood version of a short story, which we only talked about in tandem, but I watched it, or The Mangler 3. I've really enjoyed... Going through King, even if I haven't enjoyed many of the movies. I feel like it's peaking. 
right here in this moment. If I can just go ahead and say that. There are a lot of books that we're going to go beyond that I have not touched. I don't really know. To me, this is the classic King period. Carrie to Misery encompasses my fandom of Stephen King. It was where I focused on. It was the time in my life when the books were coming out that all felt important and were getting adapted. What he put out in the 90s, I don't know a lot about, and I just sense that this is the last big title in his bibliography. Everything that comes afterwards is kind of for fans only. It kind of feels that way to me as well. There's definitely... I think, three stages of King's work. And there was the stuff when he was stoned. Let's just put it there. I think stoned is putting it nicely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Misery is near the end of that period. And I was still reading King after that. We're going to talk about The Dark Half and Needful Things, both of which I read as they were new books in the very early 90s. See, a nice start with Tommy Knockers. Right after Misery, Tommy Knockers. And I was like, I hate this. <laughs> I don't want to do this to myself. I kept on reading, but I knew they felt different. By the time I got to like Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game, everything had a very different feel to it. Mm. And then after his car accident, I feel like we entered a third stage of King's writing. So I think that Misery to many people, is the end of the glory years. Mm -hmm. But King continues to be a top-selling author. Now, books don't sell as much as they used to, but it's incorrect to say he's a product of the 80s, but it is correct to say he's the biggest author of the 80s, and he continued to be an impactful, but not the biggest author in the 90s and beyond. And it does seem like almost any artist, music, books, films, your first decade tends to be the ones filled with the most important stuff. Not always. I mean, you know, I don't don't want to rule out old age and knowledge and like a fine wine becoming better. I'm not even saying King didn't become a better writer. I don't know. All I'm saying is he became less important to me. When Misery came out, it was at the end of my Stephen King fandom and I had no idea. I thought I was going to love him forever. I was actually in the middle of writing a giant 20-page book report for my English class from a teacher who was like totally into Victorian and Gothic romance novels. I really could relate to this novel. For Misery, you did a book report? Well, I included it. I did everything that Stephen King had written, and this was the capper to that report. And it felt incredibly important because she had been pushing Scarlet Letter, Jane Eyre, Weathering Heights, Pride and Prejudice, The Old Wives' Tale, French Lieutenant's Woman, all of these gothic romantic heroines like Misery Chastain. So it did feel like, yeah, you want me to keep reading this stuff just like Annie wants to keep making Paul (laughs) write this stuff and I don't like it. And the funny thing was, is that in going through that process, I didn't realize it. And maybe a lot of people, hopefully they do, when they think about the reading list in English class, they say, oh, I didn't like it. They can't relate to it, blah, blah, blah. But in doing that work, I actually think I developed taste. I actually think that I learned about theme and story and my taste changed. She won. In the end, by reading all of those books, I didn't want to read Stephen King anymore. I had matured, aged out of it, I think. And so, yeah, again, Misery, to me, feels like a goodbye to that phase of reading in my life. Well, I loved Weathering Heights and The Scarlet Pimpernel, but I don't think I ever aged out of King. And we're coming back to Rob Reiner. I mean, if we look at the King we have reviewed, and we've reviewed many movies that came out after Misery that were acclaimed, Shawshank Redemption, you already mentioned, but Rob Reiner 
before Misery, probably had one of the big successes. I mean, we got Stanley Kubrick with The Shining, Brian De Palma with Carrie. You've got the luminaries, but Rob Reiner with Stand By Me really stood above. And here we have the return of Rob Reiner to King Material. I guess I do, I'm not that familiar with Rob Reiner. I know this is Spinal Tap. I know Stand By Me. I don't think of like dark thriller horrors coming from Rob Reiner, though. No, but we just covered him. If, if you remember the summer of 1989, just before he made this movie, he was coming off a big critical commercial success when Harry met Sally. That was a nicer look at the difficulties of men and women being friends. Yeah, not a crazy nurse breaking your leg so you could write romance smut for her. Agreed. Rob Reiner had to fight for a long time to get out of the image that he was Meathead, the character he played on a sitcom All in the Family. And so almost every movie was him proving himself again and again. See, I can direct with Spinal Tap. And yeah, see, I can have heart with Stand By Me. And see, I do know something about human beings and relationships with Harry and Sally. And yeah, this is the new part of that evolution. Yes, I can do more than make you laugh. I can scare the hell out of you. But he never wanted to direct this. This came to him because of his producer friend, who also worked on When Harry Met Sally, Andrew Scheinman, picked up Misery in an airport and was like, Rob, we should do this. But this is 1988, and every single thing by King gets optioned before it even is printed on the shelves. But because of Stand By Me, Rob Reiner goes to Stephen King and is like, what's up with Misery? King would not sell the rights to Misery. He considered it his most personal novel, and there had been some shit movies made. He was very protective of these rights, so he had not sold them, and he gave them to Reiner and said, I will only sell these to you if you yourself either produce or direct this film. Hmm. And Reiner's like, you know, this will be good for Castle Rock Entertainment, my production studio, named after Castle mm -hmm. Rock. I mean, he owed a lot to King at this point because of Stand By Me. He thought it would be good for him to produce. We almost had this starring and directed by Warren Beatty. Yes, I remember that very specifically. Warren Beatty, famous for always being indecisive about his projects, taking way too long. And yeah, so long that I think people have forgotten what a huge star he was in the 60s and 70s. But yeah, this could have been some kind of comeback. You can almost see it. I actually think maybe he would have been a pretty good Paul Sheldon. His involvement in this went on for a long time, including several script rewrites. And he had said to Reiner that if we're, we'll talk about it, but Annie wouldn't let Paul have cheats in his writing of Misery. Warren wouldn't let Rob have cheats in his writing of Misery, the script. So every time there was something, he'd be like, Rob, think of me, Warren, a smart person in a bed. What would I do? Would I really do these things? And so they rewrote and rewrote till they made Warren Beatty happy. And then he got tied up in post-production on Dick Tracy. <laughs> yeah, if you work with Warren Beatty, anyone that's ever done it will tell you, you will spend forever rethinking, asking questions, writing drafts upon drafts, sometimes 20 years of drafts to get to where he wants the script to be. I do believe that his choice for Annie, very interesting, would have ch totally changed the tone of the movie, but they were going to make it Warren Beatty versus Bette Midler. Oh my. That was Warren's choice. The script was actually written 
with Kathy Bates in mind. Scre- oh, it was. Yeah. Screenwriter William Goldman went to Rob Reiner and they were talking about this before Warren was ever involved. Mm. And Goldman was like, you know who I'm envisioning as I write this is Kathy Bates. And Reiner is like, perfect. Let's use her. They know who she is. They'd seen her on Broadway because they both lived in New York. Yeah, because this is what made Kathy Bates, right? Like, I looked up her filmography because I'm like, what did she do before this? What's She's someone before this movie because this is when I knew what a Kathy Bates was when Misery came out. And she'd done a lot of TV and some movie. I Nothing I recognized, though. No, the important thing was on Broadway. And yeah, if you're outside of New York, you don't realize how important that can be for certain actors like Bernadette Peters, like I feel like is an anomaly to most people that watch TV or movies, but is a huge looming figure on the New York stage. Kathy Bates had done the production of Frankie and Johnny, made into a movie with Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer taking her part. (laughs) Well, obviously it was supposed to be a more traditional waitress role, and Kathy Bates apparently killed it on stage. I believe she got the Tony, so I can see that they thought, hey, we can take this unknown who is playing an average person and she can bring that average exceptionalism to a movie screen yeah so they did look at other people as they were doing casting but it was written with her in mind and when Beatty left they were like we want her part of it was they wanted a known actor to play paul because they said people know stephen king People see Stephen King on the books. We want a face people recognize to play the author, but people don't know who reads Stephen King. They're anonymous. So by bringing Kathy Bates in, we're bringing an unknown. Right. And it really works. Now, to get Paul, everybody was asked and everybody said no. I have a laundry list of names. (laughs) Now, you're saying after Warren Beatty, because Warren Beatty would have played the part if Warren Beatty had directed this movie. Right. But before Warren and after Warren, Mm -hmm. William Hurt said no before and after. He was approached for it. He was, if you were going to do a drama in the 80s, William Hurt was always at the top of the list. Dustin Hoffman was going to do it, but turned it down because he didn't want violence in his movies. Huh. He doesn't do violence? Oh, okay. (laughs) Isn't he the guy that has his teeth extracted by Nazis in Marathon Man? (laughs) Yeah, that was like 15 years earlier. Okay, I didn't realize that he had become so puritanical. Richard Dreyfuss said yes. Richard Dreyfuss was kicking himself because he turned down the role of Harry in When Harry Met Sally and saw Billy Crystal get all those accolades. And so Rob Reiner called him up and Dreyfuss was like, I don't care what it is, yes. And Rob was like, Maybe you want to read the script first. You're in bed the whole movie. No. (laughs) That was a big thing. All right, here Mm. we go. I'm just going to go down the list. Here's all the people who said no. Tom Cruise, right? (laughs) No, he's not on the list. Wow. Probably too young. Mm. Harrison Ford, Robert Redford, Gene Hackman, Kevin Kline, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Morgan Freeman, Mel Gibson, Al Pacino, Denzel Washington. This one would be interesting. Bill Murray. Mm. We'll talk about this guy a little bit later. Bruce Willis said no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jeff Daniels, Ed Harris, John Hurd, Robert Klein. Get this one. Ed O'Neill said no. Mm. That married with children money was just too good. (laughs) He's too busy with Peg. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I like most of these choices. Actually, a lot of them I think I might prefer over James Conn. Well, let me end with two you want to prefer, I think. Tim (laughs) Allen. Mm. Who? And Robin Williams. 
Could you imagine this as a Robin Williams? Yes, he does have things like one hour photo, but at this point in his career, yeah, that's a confusing choice. I won't say it wouldn't work, but you worry about someone like him or someone like Bette Midler. They're just known for comedy too much for it to play as like it would end up making this project feel very campy. Like we would be laughing when the leg gets chopped off. But a lot of these, you know, you say Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson, they kind of have the James Conn problem for me. We'll talk about this character, Paul Sheldon, but I feel like they should feel somewhat helpless at the beginning. And these action stars, that's the wrong way to go, in my opinion. Mel Gibson, I think, is perfect for it now that I realize his love of torturing himself and self-flagellation. <laughs> Him starting broken and bloodied and things, I think, would have been right up his alley. James Conn was a weird choice for me. I did see this movie in 1991 when it was new on video. I didn't see it in theaters, but I had only seen James Conn in two other things in my life at this point. When I was a real young kid, I saw Brian's song, and no, I didn't remember it when I saw Misery. All I knew him from was Alien Nation. Mm -hmm. He was the cop from Alien Nation to me. I don't even remember him being in that. <laughs> yeah, not the TV series that got spun off from this 1988 movie. He was the human cop to Mandy Patinkin's Alien. Uh-huh. That was all I knew James Conn for. I mean, now I think of him as Godfather. Yes, thank and, you. Don't make me yeah. say it. Like, obviously, <laughs> his biggest work was in the 70s. But yeah, he even in The Godfather, we talk about Al Pacino, Marlon Brando. He's maybe fourth on the list of people that got a bump from that. So yeah, it's a lot of ways to go with that. And James Conn got it. Why? Because everyone else said no? Because he said yes. Yeah, I do think that was quite a bit of it, is everyone else had said no. Khan was a respected actor. He was still somewhat in demand at this point. He was a name to put on a poster. And Rob liked him. Nothing bad to say about him. But he wasn't by no means the first choice. And he really wasn't sure about doing it. As it's described, he was a very physical actor, a role where he had to stay in bed for most of the time. I mean, think about how long it takes a movie to shoot. You think about a movie, and you may think a few weeks, but can you imagine every day you go to work, and what do you do for the next 12 hours? Lie in that bed and do this take after take after take. I don't know, it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I could get used to that. I know what you mean, though. Yes, actors, certainly with physical transformation and what have you, yeah, they want to be able to use their body. It is, I would almost say, a Hitchcockian exercise to have such restraints put on you. It suddenly makes it a real challenge of how do I make claustrophobia and bedriddenness something that's interesting. And it's funny you mention Hitchcock, because... After all the time with Warren Beatty, Rob Reiner had become close to this project. It wasn't lack of other director options, but he'd spent so much time with Warren and with Andrew Scheinman and William Goldman. He'd talked about it for so long. Rob Reiner was finally like, I relate to this. For reasons you said, Stuart, is because this movie was about an artist trying to break away from what he was known for. Paul Sheldon is tired of being known as the writer of Misery. Rob Reiner was tired of being known as the funny guy, and so he found something in Misery he could really latch onto and relate to, but he had no idea what it took to direct a thriller, so he holed himself up with a stack of Hitchcock videotapes, took notes, and worked with Barry Sonnenfeld, again, that director of Men in Black and all of those. He was the cinematographer here, 
and together they were trying to do, they weren't trying to ape Hitchcock, but they were trying to make a thriller in that vein. Yeah, it's very clear to me that they studied Hitchcock, and we can talk about that as we get into the movie. But in the end, if you remember Misery, what you remember about it most is Kathy Bates, who up until that point was not a known quantity to anyone that went to the movies. What I remember most is specifically an ankle. That's my go-to. When you make me think of misery, I think of an ankle, a board, and a sledgehammer. Kathy Bates is number two. Yeah, and she won an Oscar for this. I mean, that's a pretty big deal for your first big movie. I looked it up. I was like, how did she do it? Oh, she had no competition. Like, she was up against Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. Like, no kidding. Julia Roberts was up for an Oscar for that movie. Wow, bad year for actresses, I guess. <laughs> it was the year that Whoopi Goldberg won for Ghost. I mean, no. Oh, was, geez. You know, okay. Like, you in danger, girl. That's an Oscar winning line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like we get a lot these days of actresses talking about like there's not enough good roles and promote women actors, directors, what have you. But yeah, you go back to the 90s and you can see some a real desert there. There just wasn't a lot of good roles. And, you know. Kathy Bates is good in this film. We're going to talk about how good she is, but I do think that it was a novel performance in a year where no other female lead stood out. I was thinking, though, back then, the Oscars and I had a lot more in common. We've grown apart, the Oscars and I, but back then, I mean, the next year, Silence of the Lambs and Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. I mean, they were giving thrillers their due. Right. So let's give Misery its due. Arnie, give them the plot. We'll get into it. Romance novelist Paul Sheldon is played by James Caan. He's earned fame and fortune writing a series of Victorian misery novels starring his character Misery Chastain. Tired of churning out pulp for the masses, Paul's latest misery novel kills off the character. He's moved on to writing more serious fiction. This movie opens in Silver Creek, Colorado with Paul finishing that new novel. Superstitious about his own success, Paul writes all of his novels in Colorado. And when it's finished, he celebrates with a single cigarette and a bottle of champagne. Completing that ritual, Paul drives away from the resort, but a blizzard is hitting Silver Creek and his car goes off the road. Paul would have died had he not been followed by his number one fan and stalker, Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates. Annie rescues Paul from his ruined Mustang and takes him to her house where she nurses him to health. Initially, she's elated to have her favorite author in her home, but it becomes clear very quickly she isn't quite right in the head. As Paul's number one fan, Annie first asks if she can read Paul's new manuscript, but she gets angry with him at the profanity used in the book. Things take a turn when Paul's latest and last misery novel is published. Annie reads it while Paul convalesces, and she can't handle the death of her favorite character. She reveals to Paul no one knows he's there. She forces him to burn his new manuscript and to write a novel just for her. Misery Returns. Paul does, all the while calculating ways to escape. She discovers he left his room and makes sure he won't do it again by taking a sledgehammer to both his ankles. Local sheriff named Buster, played by Richard Farnsworth, continues his hunt for Paul. Eventually, he goes to Annie's and hears Paul, so Annie shot the sheriff. Knowing others will come looking, Annie plans a murder-suicide with Paul, but Paul teases Annie that the new misery novel is nearly done. She lets Paul finish the book, but when he does, he burns the final pages instead of letting Annie read it. Then, while she's distracted, he bashes her in the head with the old manual typewriter she gave him to write with. After a struggle, Annie is killed, and we flash forward 18 months later. Paul is back in New York and has a new novel, beloved by critics, but he's still haunted by visions of his captor, 
as credits roll. I don't remember the novel if it took place in Colorado, but that is something that stood out to me. No Maine. That's where Stephen King's supposed to take place. Yeah, he did write it in Colorado. Remember, The Shining was in Colorado. He used to live in Colorado. And I do remember struggling with misery because Annie doesn't turn into a supernatural creature. I'm the opposite, Stuart, because this is the first King I read. It always stood out to me as something very different because, yeah, there's no demons or ghost dogs. You don't associate Annie with your typical King villain. Yeah, and that was part of the struggle. And again, these things come out. I didn't really know what it was about. The book cover just showed a silhouette of a woman holding an axe and a guy in bed. And I imagined that there was going to be, I don't know, yeah, she's a serial killer or something. I imagined something a lot more bloody. And the shock of the book that they will not even address in this movie is that they spend a lot of time showing the actual prose of the romantic fiction, that we will actually see Sheldon craft some certain scenes and certain moments. I couldn't appreciate at that time how clever that was. The fact that we were to understand Paul's situation being in a claustrophobic environment, being tortured, actually changed the prose to be more gothic. I just didn't have that literary savvy. To me, I'm like, why do I want to read about a boring book when I want to see a woman with an axe? See, the way I picture it, I again, I don't remember the book that well, like when it went into the prose, but watching this movie again, it feels like these are dime cheap romance novels that he's writing, just those trashy novels. But it, was it more like, you, you reference Weathering Heights and that Victorian era stuff. Was it more like that? Well, here's the thing. We don't read the previous novels. We have it inferred that it was a plucky colonial woman kind of heroine, something from Little Women, a can-do woman that persevered in the face of melodramatic plot twists. And so this one feels different because, well, she's got to come out of the grave. She, you know, it's like she's dead and she's got to be like buried alive. And then all of that, that, yeah, it just ends up being more gothic and more like a Wuthering Heights or Scarlet Letter. The thing that I would equate it to was, for me, Gone with the Wind, because it was about a woman who had one man, but had a secret love for a man who she can't have, and all of this back and forth. And when I read Misery back in the day, I hated these passages. It felt Mm -hmm. like King was padding it. My equation would be, I thought the Misery prose in Misery was the equivalent of the tales of the Black Freighter stuff in the Watchmen book. I was going to ask you that. (laughs) And I totally agree with you. But going back to it, I reread the novel for this go around. I wanted to see how well it had aged. I actually think that this is King's first book about writing fiction. Like it's very meta. And he's actually, I know later he'll actually write nonfiction about what it is to tell stories It starts here. Like, this is really about how to creatively be inspired. He'd written about it before. He wrote Dance Macabre, which is also a nonfiction book about writing horror. Never read it, but you're right. But rereading Misery for this, I'll say I got into the Misery prose in that if King were to write that book, I'd be interested in reading that book of what it is Misery's return. But that said, I still feel the novel is wildly uneven with its insertion of the Misery stuff. And oh, really? See, I, I would say Misery is one of his best. And for that reason, like, I think it would be diminished if they didn't have that stuff. Like, it wouldn't be about writing. It wouldn't be postmodern. But it's weird where he puts the stuff and for how long he puts it. Sometimes it's an extended interlude. Sometimes it's like a staccato punctuation. I just feel this isn't his most 
disciplined of writing. But yes, this is about writing. Now, what he's also come out and said this is about is drug addiction. Mm. Annie is drugs, and he's the captive of the drugs. But the book is so much more about writing. It does give you an insight into his mindset. At one point, Paul says, no matter how much he had to drink, no matter how much he partied, he was up the next day writing. And it makes me think of those stories I've read about Stephen King with napkins up his nose to stop the constant stream of blood from too much cocaine, all the crushed beer cans around him, but still hammering out that fiction nonstop. I do think this was a very self-reflective novel, and that's why he held it so close. I think that's why he didn't sell misery rights to the highest bidder. Right. And so this movie is going to make an interesting choice by saying we can't dramatize that. They could have. I mean, they could have actually made it so that Paul was like a movie director and there are VHS copies of the Misery series. Maybe it's a TV show, but it's lying around. They could have taken us into the creative world. They make the choice that they're just going to make it about the battle between the guy in the bed and the woman with all the power. And that's that's probably wise. Not entirely. I mean, if you read the book, what I kept thinking of now, having read the future book, was Gerald's Game. Gerald's Game is a book that takes place with a woman alone handcuffed to a bed, and we don't really leave her perspective. In Misery, the interesting thing about Misery the book versus Misery the movie is Misery the book never leaves Paul Sheldon's point of view. It is 100% him in that room and what he is thinking. Even when we're reading the misery prose, it's what Paul is thinking at that moment. We never leave the house. Here, Rob Reiner decided we needed to open it up. They introduced Buster, a character, a townie, the sheriff, who's looking for Paul. We're going to constantly have a second thread that's going to make this film more than a one-set play. Sure, I'm just saying we will never understand the creative choices that Paul is making. That was something that they could have done, and they said, we don't want to look at that. And it may have somewhat helped, because again, James Caan, I don't associate him with like, again, I don't think these misery novels are very scholarly, but you know, a romance writer, like, he's just so gruff. Again, he, he's a mobster, he, he's a criminal, I don't know if he's a writer, so yeah, maybe to have a little bit of insight, I could have bought more into him being this romance novelist, but as it is, it just, it plays more like a survival tale. You know, I think with his name, I don't know if it was intentional or not, Paul Sheldon, there was a very popular author at the time, Sidney Sheldon, who did kind of write, they weren't romance novels, but I think all popular novelists actually deal with the stigma of being, well, you're just a hack, you just churn it out, you're all about the dollars. I think Paul represents someone that could have been a serious literary figure, but chose to crank this series out. Whether it's good or bad, it's formula. And he thinks, at least the sense that I get as we start this, when we have the one scene of him in New York with his agent, Lauren Bacall, I get the sense that he feels that he's better than what he's been forced into writing. It's kind of a weird introduction, the way they feel they have to shoehorn in that backstory, because we're seeing Paul finish his new book in Colorado. We're seeing him kind of in montage typing, and there's this Don Perignon there. And then we're getting these flashbacks that almost feel a little gauzy and soft. Maybe it's just the Lauren Bacall 
presence, but it feels weird that we're having these flashbacks to his conversation where he's turning in the final Misery novel, and then we come back. It's just a very fast-paced way to give us shorthand character background that... In a book, we're able to spend a lot of time in Paul's head. We can get all of these thoughts without flashback. In a movie, I'm glad Rob Reiner decided, you know, let's keep this short. One hour, 45 minutes. It's going to be pretty fleet. And we're going to have to tell you what Paul is feeling in this way because we're not going to be able to have an inner monologue. Well, what I get is uh, you could just see it in the book covers. That's what I kind of love. Film being a visual medium. You can't judge a book by its cover. Oh, yes, we can. Oh, I'm judging him by these book covers. <laughs> That's the only thing we have here. And so in the office, the, what has been his fortune are these eight novels, and we see the covers for all of them. And they do. They just look like they're not Fabio. Like They're not quite <laughs> that bad, but they're close. They're close. And you get the sense that, yeah, it wouldn't be something I would enjoy. It wouldn't be something, well, maybe my English teacher would enjoy, but she wouldn't assign it to us. And it's important to understand that he has written a new misery chapter that kills her off. We need to know that because that is a ticking bomb that's going to go off when he falls into the captivity of Annie, who hasn't gotten her hands on a copy of Misery's Child yet. Yeah, it's not out yet. It's very conveniently timed that he's finishing one book and the other one is just about to be published as he's driving away from this Colorado resort. Now, I notice in the movie, it's a Mustang. They call it out. It's a 1966 Mustang. I had a Mustang. It wasn't a 66, but don't drive a Mustang in a blizzard. (laughs) Just don't drive in a blizzard. Well, you can do it if you got a good SUV, some four-wheel drive, but rear-wheel drive is not your friend on slippery roads, folks. What I'm wondering is, did he write something good? We assume it because it's the passion project. It was the novel he wanted to write instead of a misery one. But by the fact that he's driving this old vintage car and he's writing a story about his early life probably is around 66. Like the way that he's driving recklessly, it does feel like he's living out an adolescent fantasy. And that maybe like a lot of first drafts, there's a lot of problems with this untitled novel. It, it was probably a vomit draft where he just put all of his thoughts about his youth that he could never forget into a romance novel onto the page. That's what it says in Misery's novel is that, yes, it's a rough first draft, but he thought it had promise. He really liked it. Is it any good? Who knows? I mean, at the end of this movie, we're going to see he's getting a claim for something, but we never know what he wrote. We just know he didn't write about this experience. Did he rewrite this untitled manuscript? Did he have another idea? We're told he can be a good writer. I assume that he did revise it. You know, this draft will be burned. We'll find out that he can't hold on to this one. He writes on a manual typewriter, which in 1990 wasn't crazy. No. I learned around this time to type on a manual typewriter. I took typing in high school and it was on typewriters. Yes, exactly. I can't imagine a manual typewriter in 1990. I could imagine electric typewriters, but... Yeah, the thing that is driven home, I think even in this movie, is he's superstitious. He had success with his first book, which he wrote there. He wrote on that typewriter. He was driving that car. He had the cigarettes. He had the champagne. And you hear this with sports players. Like, we're having a winning season. I'm not washing my underwear. 
gross as hell, but people do it. And so that's where he is, is trying to keep all of that. So I'll go with that he has a manual typewriter. It's convenient that he never made a copy of the book. Well, yeah, I mean, it's convenient, but I also think you're right. It's fresh out of his mind. He's racing home to go give it, I guess, to his publisher. I mean, I don't think he intends for it to be a single copy just yet, but they established later that he had a superstition and there's something about the satchel that he puts it in and all of that. But you're right. It speaks to someone that has been writing the same way for a very long time. And this story, if you look at it as the story of someone developing a creative instinct, is about throwing out old habits and adopting new ones. Listening to an editorial voice, which in this case happens to be the number one fan, Annie Wilkes. And we pretty rapidly get through a car crash. This isn't where the focus of the movie is. Kind of lackluster in the swerving of the car, but it's well filmed in the midst of the blowing snow. This large body pulling him out of the car, lifting a body over her shoulders and just carrying him off as the snow obscures the lens. I always wondered, and it's pretty clear from this repeat viewing of the movie, I saw it only once in theaters back in 1990, but I thought maybe there were clues to the idea that she might have caused this wreck. We do know that she was hiding out at the lodge, kind of spying on him. She will confess to that, but as far as I can see, there's nothing in the clues to say that it was his fault. He was driving recklessly like a teenager in a snowy, swervy, bendy, Colorado, icy road, and that's why he ended up in her position. It was his own fault and not hers. I didn't remember that either. When reading the book, when watching the movie, it's awfully convenient it wasn't caused by her. Given that she admits to stalking him, she knows where he writes, she goes there and just stares lovingly at the light from his room, and that she was following him since he was leaving, and she was just tailing him, that she did nothing to cause this accident. It feels like she would have. Right. We have to see it more as the hand of God, as just fate brings him together with someone that he's actually been trying to avoid, that he has been taking for granted, the paying customer that actually loves what he hates churning out. And this is one thing I do buy with Khan is is the way he plays Paul Sheldon where it's like, oh, great, my number one fan. Look, I've been to a number of comic cons and like writers and artists, sometimes they're not the most sociable, but they got to play the game. They want to make money. They want to make contacts. They got to go to these conventions. They got to shake the hands. But then every once in a while, you'll meet someone you really admire and you can tell, oh, they don't like this. They are a private person. They'd rather be in their studio penciling away by themselves, uh, you know, some comic. So I do like that about Paul Sheldon, the, the way con plays him here where yeah he's here's your number one fan he's like oh great like that's not a good thing for him he's not excited about meeting fans rubbing elbows shaking hands yeah i think of james con as being cranky as just being kind of yes difficult (laughs) like i don't like this i don't want this and i think you need that i mean some of the other choices you mentioned arnie william hurt the reason why the 80s loved to use him was he always played the asshole yuppie and yet he had a way to connect with audience audiences still liked him even though he always played a jerk and i think that's the balance you want to strike here you want paul sheldon to be kind of a jerk but you still want the audience to be with him when he's tortured and not actually rooting for annie to hurt him So that's the balance they're striking. I do think there are probably actors that could have been a little bit better at it. But uh, yeah, Khan is okay. You have to put a lot in the actor here. The script, this is one of the closest movies to King's books that we've covered. I mean, yes, it's an adaptation. It's an abridgment. They added the sheriff stuff. But 
Some of the dialogue is straight from the book. A lot of the setups are straight from the book. And in the book and in this movie, we're not given a lot of character. We know this guy wants out from writing. He talks about ex-wives and things like that, but we're never given a reason to care about him other than the predicament he's in. And so the actor has a heavy lift here to bring the charisma to it. And I think Khan does well. I think actually Khan does not get the appreciation he deserves for this role. Annie, Kathy Bates has the flashy role, but Khan gives everything here. Much like Mark Hamill with Yoda, where you takes Whoa. the human performance to sell you the Muppet is real. James Khan is giving everything to Kathy Bates. Everything she sells is his reaction that sends it home. And there's moments that I really like. Every time he has to pretend like, oh, I really do love you, Annie. I so great. You know, like I could tell Khan is not into it. Like I, I get that from his portrayal. But Arnie, do you care about Paul Sheldon in this film because of Paul Sheldon? Because for me, I care about Paul Sheldon because he, he's like a puppy that's being tortured. I don't necessarily want to own animals and have to take care of pets, <laughs> but I don't want them tortured. Like I feel bad if they're getting tortured and I want to save them from that bully that's hurting them, but it has nothing to do with the actual object that I'm trying to save. And that's how I feel about Paul Sheldon. Like, he's an abused animal, and that's why I care about him, but there's nothing about his performance directly, like, where I'm, like, rooting for Paul Sheldon to win the day. And even beyond that, I would say, what I want to see from the actor is the dawning realization of when they know they're in trouble. And I don't feel like I always know where Khan is at. Like, it's act one before he really realizes the level of danger he's in. It's a gradual first he just realizes oh i'm in a bed it's not a hospital and my legs look really really bad and then slowly but surely he's going to get to know that this woman that claims to be a fan doesn't seem to be too actively bringing in medical professionals to deal with this situation i think the first sign because what's weird in thinking about this movie is when i watched it I'd seen a lot of trailers for it. I'd seen TV commercials and theatrical trailers. I knew what movie I was in. I knew what Annie was going to be. But the movie's going to hide that from you for a period. You know, it would be hard to sell this movie if we didn't know Annie was a psychopath. But it would be so interesting to go into this movie 100% blind and wonder where it's going. Because in the early scenes, Annie does seem so nice, so homey. Just this country girl who loves this author. Where it really starts to go is she asks if she can read that manuscript. She took a peek in that satchel. She saved his work as well as him. Because what if that was a misery novel, I think? And she asks if she can read his new work. She's so excited until she sees the language in it. And the fact probably that it's not a misery novel. She's feeding him some soup. And they get into an argument about the cock duty language. And that's the first moment, and we're about 20 minutes into the film, that Annie starts to show the cracks. And see, I would want, to, what I'm looking for in this part, that I feel like Khan is not landing 100%, not with a full 10, maybe like a 7, is the idea of, does he enjoy the fact that she's not going to like the novel? Like, he knows what's in his satchel, and he knows... It's not misery. Is he taking delight in the fact that she's not going to enjoy it? At what point does he realize that when she gets angry, it could be bad for him? Like, all of that subtle character work could have been explored better. 
And I think he sells it really well here with his glances. Again, I think he's a very giving actor in this, letting Kathy Bates steal the light. But in his eyes, in his breathing, just a facial expression, I get that it's with the soup. When she spills the soup and says, look what you made me do, and she's screaming at him, he realizes he really is depending on her for everything. I never got anything that he was relishing that she wouldn't like the book. That's what I'm saying. I want to know at every moment, I want to know what Paul is thinking the reaction is going to be. Yeah, I think that would help build the character Paul Sheldon like what is he about is there a perverse pleasure that he's written something that his misery fans are gonna hate because he's so sick of misery like it could have just been little moments like that that really told me who Paul was I don't he's just a hurt puppy in this and and I care about hurt puppies I don't want them hurt so I I care about him but I wish he was more of a character it would have been bold and I don't know if it would have worked if maybe he wasn't nice you know when they go back and they ask all the people at the inn and the general store and all of that oh yeah he's a nice guy and we like him and they want the audience to feel that way but wouldn't it be more interesting if this is a cranky person who isn't nice to work with it's james Kahn. that's who i imagine paul sheldon to be cranky and not nice like play that up yeah his growth in this movie is that he's got to change and got to get out of his way and got to listen to what the fans want and i do think that in a weird way annie helps him become a better writer I definitely think that's a point in the book that King makes. I don't get it out of the movie. I really don't. I'm Maybe the movie's trying to tell me that, but again, it would be nice if one of the flashback scenes with Lauren Bacall was her going, yeah, this book's no good. Go up to Colorado and rewrite it or something like that. Because as it is, what we have here is a very simple rabbit in a trap movie. The whole thing is he is stuck In this trap, he has broken legs. How is he going to get out? His writing is merely, and the book calls this out, it's A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, where the sheik was going to kill his bride, and the bride kept telling the story night after night and keeping him interested in the tale so that she didn't get beheaded. And here, his writing is merely the carrot he dangles to keep her happy and to keep himself from being punished. I tend to agree with her that he probably dispatched Misery Chastain too quickly out of a need to say, I don't want to do it anymore. I mean, come on, eight books. Well... Yeah, not quickly in that sense, but in the fact that I'm all of a sudden just going to kill her in childbirth just because... Yeah, I can understand how upsetting that would be if if I were a fan of anything and all of a sudden the creator just said, dead. I mean, yeah, you'd be mad. Now, I mean, hopefully you wouldn't be psychotically mad and threatening the person's life, but you would be mad. Yeah, you just take to Twitter and complain on there and attack them personally. <laughs> well, this is all pre-internet. As a child, I remember crying when Alex P. Keaton's girlfriend dumped him in that episode of Family Ties. I mean, I just couldn't deal. But I was 11. You know, I would hope that by the time you are an adult, you can separate fiction from reality. Now, I say I hope. I've been on Twitter and talked to Star Wars fans. I know a lot of them can't. But I would hope you can separate reality and fiction where 
you'd feel a sense of loss, but it would be an intellectual sense, a sadness that isn't actually real. Yeah, no, but you want, for dramatic purposes, it's good that Annie is psychotic. Like, I mean, I think that this is probably a very bad depiction of mental illness. Most mentally ill people do not hurt other people. They're more inclined to be hurt themselves. And so this feels more like a parody of, if you remember Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> that's really what Kathy Bates is kind of doing here. But I'm trying to make the point that I think that she speaks for us as anyone that have been fans of something and then felt let down by the creator. Yeah, my memory was that she was just a crazy fan, and I think that that would be a great way to go. Someone that otherwise is mentally there, but they just get caught up in a fandom and go crazy when it doesn't go their way. But watching this again, I'm like, oh yeah, she is mentally ill. Like, it rains and she gets depressed and she's just gonna leave while Paul's suffering because, yeah, she's got the blues. And the Blu-ray has some wonderful bonus features where they brought in clinical psychologists to watch the movie and they actually diagnose her. She's bipolar with borderline personality disorder. Yeah, that's what I would have said. And they show all of the classic classical symptoms. She's not just crazy person written crazy. The way King wrote her and the way that Reiner and the writer here adapted her follows patterns of realistic mental illness. Now, Arnie, I look forward to when you get to this on Books and Nachos, but my memory of this was, what I remember thinking even at the time was, this was King responding to the reception of Eyes of the Dragon. Oh, yes, very literally. Yeah, King had tried to go in the fantasy novel direction and... It didn't sell as well, and so he perceived that rejection as Annie. Not just it didn't sell as well, but fans were, we don't like it when you don't give us what we want. And it's not like King was sitting around wanting to write a million fantasy novels, but he- Well, he did. I mean, how many Dark Towers <laughs> are there? Yeah, he had already started that. Well, the weird thing is- Eyes of the Dragon is tied to the Dark Tower and the Stand. Of course. <laughs> and so the people who read The Gunslinger and all of that, which was three books in, I believe, maybe two, but close to three books in when Eyes of the Dragon came out, it would have been more receptive. But the Dark Tower books weren't mass published. They weren't put out by Bantam and Del Rey and his other publishers. You couldn't just walk into Walden Books and pick them up as a new release. And so... Here, Eyes of the Dragon, which was a major release, skewed different. I remember not liking it. I was 12 years old when I read it, and I read every page, but dutifully, not avidly. <laughs> yes, I remember being underwhelmed as well. And some of that is my own ambivalence towards the fantasy genre, and some of it was, I don't think King is probably one of the best. He's not Tolkien. He wrote it for his very young preteen daughter so she could have something to read of his that she liked because she didn't like horror and then like the Bachman books King's like I wrote it it's good enough to publish yeah I'm sure there are ideas King has never published but it does feel every idea ends up going out whether it's truly vetted or not and so he put out something that was different. It was rejected, much like Paul here has tried to go in a different line. And now Annie wants him to burn that book and get back to the business of writing Misery Chastain. And we continue to see the amazing performance here by Kathy Bates as she comes in and she's happy, then she gets angry. But the real 
first breaking point comes about 30 minutes in where she has read the death of misery. She's shouting at him. And the next step, what's she going to make him do? Burn his book. Yeah, it's very clear she projects like misery is her. Misery, from what I can gather, is a common character who uh, has somehow travailed in the face of impossible odds and found love, something that Annie has not, or at least we don't know enough about her yet to make a prediction. Well, and it does feel like she knows that she looks like Kathy Bates. I mean, I I don't want to be mean, but, you know, every time Paul will try to kind of flirt with her to get on her good side, she's like, oh, I know you're just joking. You're just being nice. I know I'm not that great. Like, so, yeah, I could see someone wanting to get lost in these romance novels. To be honest... I'm surprised how cute Kathy Bates is here. Agreed. Yes. I had to look up how old she was because, yeah, now she just seems like an old woman. They don't over-dramatize any of her ugly qualities. If you remember her that way, it's because of the way that the performance comes across as so large, but not in her physical transformation at all. No, she's definitely a little dowdy. They dress her school marmishly. Oh, yeah. that I don't know what that's called, but whenever you have those lace collars on those black frocks, it's like... <laughs> (laughs) Like something like the stereotypical grandma would wear from last century. You know, she's chubby, but she's actually, I think, rather attractive compared to King's depiction, where it is like a troll that crawled out from under a bridge and (laughs) is so hulking and tall and large in every way. But you know who we have to credit is also Barry Sonnenfeld. He gets that wide angle lens going, not quite fisheye, but we're distorting her features. We're close up in on her eyes and it's only done during her rages. Yeah, I like the cinematography when it, yeah, she's raging and it feels very claustrophobic. She's in the center of the screen and it's just her. She's like taking up the whole frame. She's almost yelling at you, the audience. But yeah, I love it. Oh, very much she's yelling at you. Everything's up angle, so extreme. It's almost up her nostril because it's point of view, Paul. You are the person in the bed. She is raging at you, the viewer. And this is really ahead of the curve. I do feel like in the 90s, we explored the nature of celebrity a lot with the OJ trial and everything else. But this is a story about a celebrity, now the captive of the commoner, and the resentment that comes from someone being famous and someone being unloved and unseen. And that's really the battle here. That, that I think one of Annie's best moments is when, yeah, sometimes she can be played. Sometimes Paul can prey upon her and see her loneliness and be like, hey, let's have dinner. I'm going to charm you. And you see that it has an entire intoxicating effect on her and sometimes she'll just level with him and say like you will never understand what it's like to be common you'll never get it you don't understand my pain and i think that humanization is why you should celebrate kathy bates performance sure it's fun to watch her go big and swing axes but it's the fact that she can ground this character and not make her as over the top as king would like to make her again it just makes her all the more relatable and maybe more scary for it Yeah, I mean, the way when she makes him burn the book, she's being nice about it, kind of. You know, she comes in, she's smiling. She's like, I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. Help me help you. Here's a match. Burn your book. And again, I'm not even convinced that she's not right. You know, like that maybe like this first draft does need to be completely thrown out and start over again. I mean, that's the interest. When you think of this as the story of being creative, yeah, sometimes you have a vomit draft and you go, well, thank God that's out of me. Now I can actually write the novel. 
yes, but I believe King. In fact, he said in interviews, one of his greatest fears is losing one of his books. And I think if there was a burning fire, he would save his children first, but he'd go in for any copies of his unpublished books next. That's why this movie is interesting, because it's essentially about a writer's relationship with an editor. And I don't think of King as someone that (laughs) listens to an editor. That's why all his books are 600 pages long, but he's absolutely right. It's painful to go through that process. It's terrible to be told not every word that you put out there is great, and you totally need to hack this away and do this and that. We've done a book. We know what that's like. It sucks. We did. We hired an editor. And so the process is such that even though I recognize it's ridiculous and cruel and extreme, But again, I can't help feeling like maybe she doesn't have a point sometimes. I'm on her side in a weird way. And again, I think that King sees this as fans and as drug addiction. I don't think he has had to listen to an editor since he left his publisher because they took a few chapters out of the stand. From now on, it's, yes, sir. What would you like, Mr. King? Absolutely, Mr. King. A turtle that saves the world? Sure, Mr. King. (laughs) And it hasn't hurt his sales, which is ultimately the bottom line. You have to listen to people when what you do isn't working. And I could say all day long that King needs to shorten his books. The readership says, no, we like them long. So it's my personal opinion, and I'm pushing here. Obviously, King doesn't feel he needs an editor, and, and the readers agree. And now is when she starts demanding, you write misery returns she even gives the title here's a typewriter i bought here's some paper and you're gonna write this book and then i'll let you go did she say i'll let you go i never got that i never picked that up she says oh you know as soon as those phone lines are back up i'll call the hospital i'll call the cops like she keeps making promises and then at one point she's gonna finally just crack and say no one's coming for you but yeah she does lead him on that wire for a bit promising that she'll get help But she has told him, no one knows you're here, before she gives him the typewriter. It's when she finds out Misery dies, she wants to hurt Paul back and says, nobody's coming for you. And we already knew there had been a scene of her going to the store, coming back with the book. She passed a supporting character, the sheriff, and makes no attempt to stop and tell him. We would already know at this point that she has got Paul exactly where she wants him, has no desire to share him with the outside world. And I love that shot. It's the one time I really feel Barry Sonnenfeld behind the camera doing this like 180 degree pan where the camera's moving one way and we're focusing on the sheriff and it just turns and in a moving truck going the other way is Annie and now we're following on a tracking shot on Annie. I have no idea how they did that without computers. Yeah, this is all before that digital revolution. And let's talk about Buster McCain a little bit. Richard Farnsworth, he was also the star of the David Lynch movie, The Straight Story, and just comes off very naturally feeling like a sweet law enforcement cowboy kind of character here. I think that what they do with him is something that I've seen Hitchcock do a lot. When he has characters that are here largely to make plot mechanics go off, kind of an unfun, perfunctory role, he ends up finding thematic reasons for them. I always like the way that average people... In Hitchcock movies, if you look at Shadow of a Doubt, we have a whole suburbia or vertigo. There's like this normal girl that isn't the object of James Stewart's obsession. Always watching how the real world reflects 
the craziness of the thriller scenario. Uh, allow us, Hitchcock to have some commentary about what's really going on, some social commentary. And I think that Buster and his wife end up kind of reflecting the thematic values of the misery novels and the romances as he gets into the case and tries to solve it when state troopers believe Paul is dead. Richard Farnsworth, I know from the straight story, but Frances Sternhagen is the one who I really enjoy here. We talked about her briefly in The Mist. I know her from Sex in the City. She played Bunny, who was Kyle MacLachlan's socialite mother in Sex in the City. She'd also be in Stephen King's Golden Year series. I really like her little sarcasm in this. She brings a lot of character to her character. And that's what I mean. Like, you're seeing a husband and wife bicker in the same way that Paul and Annie are bickering. But because it's done by common folk, it doesn't have the same value, and yet because they're juxtaposed one against each other, you could look at this as a critique of a marriage, too. And, and and that's just the kind of fun gamesmanship that Hitchcock is always playing. It shows me that Rob Reiner and the screenwriter William Goldman care about honoring Hitch, not just in the suspense moments, but in his overall storycraft. Oh, I definitely felt like scenes from a marriage where when Annie is sent back out to get paper because the paper she got smudges... And she's like, I cook for you, I clean for you, I do everything, can't I get a little consideration? I've never had that moment in my marriage, but it feels like something I would see in like Everybody Loves Raymond or something. Yeah, I, I like the way that he approaches solving this case. He is the only law in town, like the <laughs> Lauren Bacall is calling, like, send all your troops, like, this is it, this is all I got. And when we finally have the car you know it's buried in ice but when they're finally able to find it in the flyovers he's the only one to notice that the door was pried open and so he doesn't buy the theory that paul's body is just a few miles away rolled down the hill and you talk about that character work with him and his wife w- with the writing what i appreciate about the writing with the sheriff is like it'd be real easy to write like the doofus small town sheriff and like I don't know I don't see a car in the snow guess I'll go back to the office and while Paul's being tortured but he's always out there like trying to find Paul like he sees the car he notices the damage like you said Stuart he's gonna get in that helicopter he's actually for such an old man pretty competent sheriff yeah, I agree. I, I always like the homespun, but smart. You know, Fargo did that as well. You could almost underestimate them because they're so kind. But in fact, there's a creative mind going on here too. And one that kind of melds with Paul's character. He had never read a misery novel. And when everyone else is calling off the investigation, he's like, you know what? I'm going to just go read the books and maybe there'll be a clue in that. That's a bit of a stretch. Like, But I like that his wife calls him out. What, you think you're going to find a plot about a guy whose car wrecked in the snow but it is through reading that he's going to have a memory and connected to annie not just a memory he's gonna write down a quote and then hear that quote later oh i don't like that development see i like that i mean to me that's very hitchcock that is something that hitchcock would do to write down a random quote and then hear it later like total happenstance It's not high happenstance. It's the idea that because he was an attentive to what Paul was... I mean, again, if you look at this about the process of writing, because he is paying attention in the same way that Annie was paying attention, he is able to make the connection that other people would miss about her. 
I go a different way. That quote struck him as odd. He couldn't figure out why, but that quote really spoke to him. It's because he'd heard it before. He couldn't place where. So he says it to his wife. He writes it down. Why is this quote? It's an itch in his mind, and he's going to find out later he's heard it before because it was in the press coverage when Annie was on trial. Right, and we're going to learn a lot more about that once Paul is sneaking around. He becomes an active character. He does not remain a guy in bed, although it might feel that way to the actor playing him. Once he gets a wheelchair and she has to go out for stuff, he has some tense moments picking the lock with a bobby pin, finding out, in fact, she does not have an active phone line. The rotary phone is just a shell. See, I felt like that's something she would have just done out of paranoia in case Paul ever did get out. Like, let's just disassemble the phone. What I remembered from the movie also, but it turned out I think I was remembering the book, is that I thought he did get addicted to the narcotics she was giving him because he is in a lot of pain. It's when he sends her out for the paper. It's really day one of writing the new Misery novel that he does sneak out. He gets a bobby pin and uses it to pick the lock and goes out there and snoops around her house, gets extra pills. I thought he was going to wean himself off or go through withdrawal. No, in the movie, it's very easy for him to just stop start pretending to take the medicine and he's storing it all up because he's planning on drugging her at some point. I also think there's just something funny about, for anyone that's ever had to face the blank page, you will do anything else in your house. You will wander around and do other things. The fact that this is him going exploring rather than buckling down and writing this misery novel feels very apropos of the act of writing and the delays that writers do when they they don't know how to proceed, when they're blocked. He's stumped. He doesn't want to write this novel. He doesn't want to bring her back. How is he going to do it? It's only acts to the head that he's even attempting it and when he does bring her back and he doesn't like how she's brought back and you know i can really feel annie's talk here because (laughs) again when i was young i would hate it when shows cheated when you are young we should invite her on this show (laughs) annie should be a podcaster on this show we do this all the time this is our raison d'etre to like (laughs) just say rocket man didn't jump out of the damn car they car yeah they cheated we will call that out again and again it is not satisfying which is why again i say annie has my heart i get where (laughs) she's coming from I did love this when I read this book when it came out because it articulated something like, I'm with you, Arnie. I'd be watching G.I. Joe and it'd be a to be continued, a two-parter. And then it'd pick up on that cliffhanger and it would like totally change how it ended. I'm like, huh, I don't remember it ending that. Like, I love this part of the book and this part of the film too because it just articulated something I felt as a kid but was never like quite sure how to explain it. Mm-hmm. Yes. He put Misery in the ground in his last novel, Misery's Child. That is where she must be at the beginning of Misery's Return. And that's a very fair request. You can't have that suddenly she got an experimental blood transfusion and is fine. You have to dig her up. You can't do the JR shot was all a dream. That whole last season was a dream. <laughs> I mean, I would go get the axe if he tried that shit. <laughs> So yeah, again, I kind of love her for the way that she's holding his feet to the fire and saying, you have to do it. You have to be fair with your audience. You can't cheat them. And I do think that any writer needs to have that voice in their head when they're tackling this kind of assignment. 
Hopefully not in these extreme situations. And, and he's still rebelling. He's still hoping he can drug her. This is where we realize why he's not taking his pain medicine. He's stashing up. He's got a whole paper envelope of powder that he wants to put in her wine after he finally writes the beginning that she will accept. When he finally says... Okay, there's some grave digger named Annie digging her up. Again, I wonder, could we be seeing these moments? Would it be enriching to cut away? Or would it hurt the claustrophobia of what Reiner has set up to have another location? I think Reiner could do it. First of all, I think Reiner has already undercut his own claustrophobia intentionally by bringing in the sheriff. We get to go into town. We get to see other locations. And... Reiner could pull it off because we mentioned many of his films. We didn't mention The Princess Bride. He has done a costume drama fantasy piece. With William Goldman, the screenwriter. That was his book. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're playing to the same audience here. I think that much like when I was young and reading Misery or an adult and reading Watchmen and I just want to get on to the main story, I think long interludes that have no resolution of their own that are perhaps thematically tied to what's going on in the main story, but not narratively tied and not having a climax of its own would be very frustrating and completely turn me against this movie. Yes, they could have done it, but I ultimately respect the fact that they're trying to keep suspense in the foreground and whatever else about the creative writing thing. That's all gravy. That's all in the background. That's not what we're about. We're Hitchcock in the way that Hitchcock told Rear Window, which if you'll remember, Jimmy Stewart is in a wheelchair in that movie. He, like James Caan, can't move. He's stuck in front of that window watching it happen. Our rope, which is designed to look like it's one continuous camera take and all takes place in one apartment building where there's been a murder. That is the Hitchcock that they're trying to honor here. And yes, Paul goes to dinner, drugs her wine, and does she spill it on purpose? Does she know? I'm never quite convinced when she's fooling him or herself. I think she had no clue because if she knew, she'd punish. Or is it her mental disorder that makes her punish? That's the one thing, and again, why I like this performance. It's so sticky. Sometimes she's so smart, and she's so ahead of him, that I think that the only times that she's cruel and, and attacking him are when she's overwhelmed by her emotions, when it rains and suddenly she can't help herself. But she knows that he doesn't love her, and she knows, yeah, she knows everything about her house. So if, like, a knife is missing or, or a penguin gets turned around, like, she's going to figure it out. Yeah, I still don't think she knows he's drugging the drink. I think the way that entire scene is played, I think it's an accident. I definitely think Paul thinks it's an accident. And James Conn gets maybe his best moment in the whole film right there where he has to just swallow his utter frustration. He was so close to out and to just see this stupid accident take away days and days of squirreling away the medicine inside the pills and he still has to fake this romantic dinner with her he goes for much of the movie still trying to lead her on still trying to be what she wants him to be not because he's afraid of her but because they're in a chess match and he thinks he can outsmart her that's all gonna go away one night when she does realize he's been out of the room and turned a penguin around. Yeah, she will eventually. And I think that she might know it even ahead of her reacting to it. 
but she gets in moods. I mean, as people in bipolar diagnosis do, like suddenly it's just beyond them not to react. I mean, at first she just goes away and you wonder, is she going to go harm herself and never come back? And then, you know, what would he do then? He would be equally screwed. But the ankle scene, the hobbling. Warren Beatty did not like this. This was perhaps part of the reason Warren Beatty didn't do it. He was going to write this scene out because once you hobble him, according to Warren Beatty, you make Paul Sheldon, quote, a loser for the rest of the film. A loser? (laughs) Warren Beatty has a, I mean, they always talk about vanity. And again, why his movies end up being so expensive is that he will spend an inordinate amount of time lighting himself, always looking good. He just doesn't like to show him rare. I I won't say always. Again, one of my favorite actually my favorite performance of his he does look pretty scuzzy but for the most part yes he likes to be the romantic leading man handsome eternally youthful and so no he would never allow himself to be maimed permanently and this is the scene that i think arnie you say you think of this even before kathy bates and i think that is somewhat true like this is the scene that stands out is when he gets those ankles smashed I remember this movie having more torture, or I don't know if the book did. I was surprised watching it again after probably close to 30 years that this is the big torture moment. And, you know, there's a lot of cat and mouse stuff going on, mind games going on, but outright, like, just smashing his bones. I remember a lot more of this stuff, but this is pretty much it, this one scene. And, oh, is it effective. In the book, she cuts off his foot. One foot. Okay, that's what I thought. But given that this was, in his words, the cost of an artist to separate from what he's known for, Rob Reiner thought amputation was too high a price for Paul to pay. They use the same dialogue. The whole diamond mine speech is straight from King's prose. But, no, here the hobbling is we're going to get out a plank of wood And I'll never forget my reaction the first time I saw that ankle turn 90 degrees when it's hit with the (laughs) sledgehammer. To this day, that gets a physical reaction from me. My guts clench up when I see that scene. But the first time, I actually think I was sitting alone and I just screamed in horror at what happened to that ankle. Yeah, so for some reason, the second leg is doesn't hurt as much. Like, watching the first one, you are like, ah, I can't process it. But, like, they don't show you the second one. Mm. You see the ankle bend, and it's so quick because yeah. they don't have the greatest special effects, but you see it bend, and then you cut away. For the second one, all you see is James Conn screaming. And from what I hear, they never even filmed the second ankle being bent. They filmed it so you'd get it with the first one. You don't need to see it twice. So here's my question, because before this, we talked about Paul going around the house, and we find out more about Annie's past. Why do serial killers always scrapbook their murders? Her husband disappeared, and there is another nursing student that was smarter than her, and then she died, and then all these infant deaths at the hospital. Like, now she's not just mentally ill, but she's also a serial killer. Like, would this be scarier if she was just an obsessed fan, and that's why she's crushing his ankle, so he'll write that book that she wants, instead of giving her these, okay, she's got some mental illness, but now she's got some real crazy tendency. She is a mass murderer. 
Yeah, I think that what this signals to Paul is that if he had any idea that writing this book would free him, he now knows his fate. He knows, I mean, we would know that. I don't think that anyone watching this movie would conclude that she would ever put him in an ambulance and watch him drive away, that she's going to keep him forever. But I think for that character, he now knows. And she left it out for him. Again, I wonder if she didn't know he was getting out and around and said, here, I want you to know about me. But that was the first time he got out. And this is based off of a real crime. There was a nurse who would make babies sick and then she'd resuscitate them so she could be a hero nurse. And that's what King was going off of with this. The murders get a lot more detail in the novel, but here... It's enough to know she's killed before she's capable of it. I already knew she was crazy, though. Like, I don't know if I needed that detail. Like, I believe Paul's in danger. I think Rob Reiner respects what King wrote and yet pulls it back. Because if you remember the book, like, ultimately, when the sheriff finds out what's going on, like, she gets a riding lawnmower and, like, it just (laughs) really goes over the top. I I think that Robert Reiner hits all of the beats that King had in his story, but always humanizes. It just never gets into that operatic, over-the-top ridiculousness. It never goes lawnmower man with literally a lawnmower going over (laughs) the sheriff. Yeah, yeah, you could feel King's glee in wanting to show how horrible this kind of fan was to deal with. Like, he really relished in showing an extreme vision of ugliness. And again, I think that's why he's a popular writer, is that... He can summon faces of fear, and he is beloved as one of his greatest villains. But I like the fact that the movie pulls back, and I like the fact that the performance... I don't believe that Kathy Bates would ever get on a riding lawnmower and take out the sheriff. I kind of like the way that he dies here, this tete-a-tete that they have. (laughs) She does have a pet pig named Misery. I'm like, does she feed the sheriff to the pig? I guess that's Snatch I'm thinking of. Not sure, but I think that she realizes when the sheriff is there, they don't have much time left. And he, again, as you pointed out, figured it all out because there is a justice higher than that a man, I will be judged by him, was a line that Annie said when she was called in court, when they were getting suspicious of the people that she killed. Again, you wouldn't have that plot detail if they didn't have that murder scenario, Jacob. That's why they got to retain that. She has a long history of being suspected by the law for doing nefarious things. She made a declaration that she stole from a misery novel. And now because that sheriff has read that novel and just by chance saw her driving through town, chewing out some other driver, he starts to realize he needs to pay her farm a visit. Yeah, I love that scene where he's in the house and she's trying to just be the perfect host and saying, oh, I felt a vision that I need to start writing the novels Paul Sheldon never will and I need to pick up his work, making me wonder if her long-term plan is to keep Paul in the basement writing books that she will publish under her name so she can be the famous one. Yeah, maybe, or or maybe she just, again, she is so quick. She's smart, and she knows that the sheriff, like, sees a typewriter and knows that she's been buying reams of paper at the general store, and she knows how that looks. She knows she's got to come up with a story. She's all too quick to tell that story and try to explain away all of the things that are mysterious so that it looks perfectly normal. Yeah, I like that she tries to spin the story that she's a writer now and she's taken that up and she doesn't try to deny anything here. She just has a story ready to go. And look, 
don't drink no hot chocolate from Annie Wilkes. That sheriff, I think he just wanted to leave, but like she kept trying to push that hot chocolate on him. I'm like, you don't want that. I think he does know that. He's like, yeah, if he drank that chocolate, I'm 99% sure that it was laced with poison and he would fall down dead. But he could have walked away. He could have gotten completely away. It was only because Paul is heard in a muffled scream in the locked room that the sheriff returns. Back it up a second. Why do you think the chocolate was poisoned? Because if she poisoned the sheriff or kills the sheriff, she knows it starts a ticking clock. Somebody knows where the sheriff is and is going to come look. No one knows the sheriff's there. He's the only cop in that town besides maybe his wife. I think she's just like a secretary that hangs out at the station. I, I just assume that she's poisoning anything she's handing that. She really wanted that sheriff to have that hot chocolate. Yeah, and uh, also I agree with you, Arnie. I do think she thinks this is the end. I think she realizes there is no time left, but she's not going to let him get away and bring the authorities. She's going to kill him. I thought she was just being the kind host, trying to be very cordial so that she can just get him out of there and she can go back to her crazy playing house with Paul. And it's only when the sheriff hears Paul that she realizes, okay, now I have to take swift action. See, I think between these two actors' performance, which I think is on a higher level than what James Caan, Kathy Bates have, I think that she has read that I've tried to fool you, you don't believe me, you're going to go back and you're going to make phone calls and I'm going to have a squadron of cops coming at me soon, so I'm just going to take you out now. That's the way that I read this scene. And I really enjoy it. For Again, she's smart enough to be playing that chess game. And she has calculated that her best odds here are just to make sure he never leaves the premises. But he doesn't drink the cocoa. So she has to get the shotgun. And that is a shocking moment, too, because you just you think that you're at the climax of the film. The sheriff who we've been following this whole time has seen Paul and is going down there, and we think this is the end. Oh no, the sheriff is dead, and what's going to happen to Paul next? I think at a certain point, based upon this was an accident, Annie doesn't have a plan per se. She's kind of treating it like George Lucas treated the prequels, playing some jazz, seeing where it goes, but now she has a plan, and it's not just kill Paul, it's going to be a murder-suicide. She's going to become famous by killing him. She will be in the same breath as Paul. They'll mention her because of how they died. But not only that, but she never wants him to leave her. You know, she had that line about like, you just don't know what it's like for someone like me losing someone like you. I mean, she just doesn't want to let go of misery as a character. She doesn't want to let go of this writer and the relationship that they built. And yeah, there's nothing else for her. She certainly doesn't want to go to prison. So for all of the reasons, she's prepared to end it. And I believe she would do it if Paul doesn't just finally knuckle down and say, okay, I'm going to write this damn novel. Like, I'm going to give myself the time frame to, like, finish the whole damn thing in one night. He does this big declaration of love, too. And again, we've seen Annie go, oh, I know you're just being nice, but I do think, yeah, she isn't so caught up in that psychosis that she has at this point that, yeah, let's go along with that. You love me and you're going to finish this novel and let's celebrate and have some wine. It is her kryptonite. It is her one weak spot is that when Paul can be really good at charming and again, dangle the idea that all the things she ever wanted to know about misery will finally be revealed in these final pages and that it will just be a literal end for everything that she's ever wanted. Yeah, she can wait a night for that. They probably won't have the authorities before morning. And this is where 
Paul becomes cunning. He's been playing her game for quite some time, but he has this whole thing mapped out. He knows that she knows his final ritual with the cigarettes and the champagne, and that cigarette is going to give him a match. He's going to do to her what she did to him. He's going to burn the book. What could hurt her more than to do to her what she did to him? She burnt his personal story. I'm going to burn your personal story. I, you want this more than anything, and I'm going to love making you choke on it. Like, literally, not only am I going to burn the pages, I'm going to stuff them down your throat. Yeah, I, I do love that her demise is, like, all the stuff that she got from Paul. Like, he's going to burn that manuscript, make her choke on it, smash her with the typewriter, take that statue of a pig. She has a real pig named Misery and, like, kill her. with. Like, she's literally killed by Misery in this movie. Yeah, I love that she, after her tirades of language and phrases like cock when this all comes down, she finally breaks, you cocksucker! <laughs> I mean, that is showing that underneath it all, everybody curses. And I do remember, and I thought it was been poetic, that she died with the typewriter, that the typewriter killing her, the pig killing her, yeah, it's kind of funny, but there's something poetic if she died having her head bashed in by the typewriter she made him use. Right. Yeah, I mean, they have both endings, and they want to do the slasher thing. You think she's dead, and then she's got to come back, and so you got to kill her with something else other than the typewriter. And yes, having the pig-shaped whatever that was. It looked like a iron, like a clothing iron or something like that with a pig handle. It's a decoration you put by a fireplace. I don't know why they make these giant metal things that won't melt, won't burn if a spark comes out, but my grandparents had cast iron rabbits. My wife has one. I don't know where she got it, probably from her grandparents or something, but we have one of those in our house. Right. And here was the funniest moment in Rob Reiner's commentary. He was like, you know, you probably couldn't do this scene today with Annie. You think she's dead, but she's coming back. But back in 1990, it hadn't been done, so people weren't expecting it. I'm like, Rob, we need to sit down. We need to watch a whole bunch of movies. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of Friday the 13th. And I mean, even before that. <laughs> had you seen Manhunter, maybe? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, he was learning all about it. But, you know, it really isn't about her death. They had to give us this ending. It's, it's a good ending. But the coda is more important to me. What is he going to do having lived through this experience? How has it changed him as a writer? You have to think, I mean, it really seemed like he actually thought the Misery novel was really good. And again, better because of the psychic torture she was inflicting on him. Wouldn't you be tempted to publish it? Wouldn't you be tempted to recreate that novel and put it out 18 months later? King was. I mean, in King's book, Misery, King could not bear the thought of burning a manuscript. That Misery book was the bestseller there was. But in the movie, Paul is done with Misery. He's not going to write a book about his experience with Annie, nor is he going to publish the book he wrote during his experience with Annie. I think it's the untitled manuscript. What we only thing we knew about it was it had to do with his early education as a juvenile delinquent, and the novel is called The Higher Education of J. Philip Stone. So I take that to mean that having gone through all of this, he was able to 
go back to that first draft, that untitled draft that she burned in the Weber grill and recreated it better than it ever would have been. Again, the fact that he's still seeing her, thinking about her, imagining her approaching him in this Tony restaurant where he's being told by his agent, you're now going to win Pulitzer Prizes. I do think that that is a way of saying that it was a gift as much as it was uh, torture. I took it as post-traumatic stress syndrome, and I don't think any PTSD sufferer would ever call it a gift. No, but again, we're talking metaphor here, aren't we? We're, <laughs> the, the, this is a dramatization of the pain of rewriting. And I think that, yeah, it is kind of funny to think the experience was more than just about killing an annoying fan. Yeah, it would have been nice if it was something more than that. I, I guess my biggest complaint is this seems kind of thin, and, and maybe because this is 30 years old, this seems so chilling at the time, and now I'm like, oh, the, I can show this to the kids. There, <laughs> besides that ankle going 90 degrees, there's not a whole lot of gross-out stuff in this. Uh, yeah, it would have been nice if there was some kind of commentary, like maybe he did appreciate having that strict editor there, even though, yeah, it was this torturous situation. Something ironic. Well, that's the way I take it to mean. When we have the waitstaff rolling out the dessert and then she briefly looks like Annie, I I think that that's Paul, again, forever changed, not just traumatized, but changed in his approach to writing. And it's made him the respectable author he set out to be at the beginning of the movie. Oh, see, that to me, that's Rob Reiner going, look at this, look at this crazy moment. She's back, but not really, fooled you. Yeah, to me, it's pure scare moment. It's showing him afraid. It's not showing him spurred on to write because he sees Annie and this waitress. He's scared and traumatized because he sees Annie and this waitress. I think you're stretching for a metaphor that maybe King intended, but Reiner didn't. But, metaphor or not, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Misery? Jacob. I know I said that it's weird that, like, this isn't more gory, and that's how I remembered it, and it seems kind of tame, but Rob Reiner, that, that's a weird choice, and that's something that popped out to me this time watching. I'm like, really? Stand By Me, Princess Bride, this is Spinal Tap, they got that guy? But I think it's a better film for it. Like, if this was a horror director, if this was an Eli Roth or something, I don't know if there would be those little flares that really draw me in, like the way Annie is framed and how it feels like she's yelling at me when she's yelling at Paul, like really putting that spotlight on Kathy Bates and letting her perform. I mean, there's a moment when she's making Paul burn that manuscript and she's just raging and she's holding that lighter fluid and it's going all over the bed and you can see James Caan, he's panicking, like is she going to set him on fire? I could tell she's totally out of control she probably doesn't even know she's throwing that lighter fluid everywhere it's just a great little moment like that and i feel like if did have a horror person they'd probably want to push it more yeah let's let's set him on fire a little bit or something like that so i actually think this is a stronger film because there is that restraint from someone outside of that typical horror thriller type of genre it just brings a different point of view and i think this is a great thriller again i have some issues with james Kahn, but kathy pates is so strong like it's great watching it for her and it's a tense little film it's weird because i it feels like it should be bigger especially with king he's always you know doing these huge things but this is about a guy stuck in a house with a crazy woman and it's an entertaining thrill ride for that so yeah recommend stewart Yeah, the word I would say, Jacob, is maturity. Like, Misery, the book, represented newfound maturity and sobriety for King. And I think Rob Reiner, as a director, found maturity by tackling this subject matter. We didn't know that Meathead had an inner 
Hitchcock. And it's an inner Hitchcock. It's not an inner slasher director. You know, we always try to make that jump into what the genre that Hitchcock made with Psycho. But a lot of Hitch projects, they aren't about gore. They really aren't about the violence. And what's impressive about this, too, is that it evokes Hitchcock without slavishly aping his style. Like, the score does not sound like Bernard Herrmann. The cinematography does not have the trick shots that sometimes you see in those Hitchcock movies. So many thrillers from the 90s tried to ape the master of suspense, basic instinct, hand that rocks the cradle. They really tried to do and be Hitchcock in the 90s. Misery understands the tropes, but it doesn't feel the need to draw arrows to them in neon sharpies. It still is a Rob Reiner, character-driven, kind of funny movie on top of being a thriller as well. And again, so it shows that maturity. And it would have been very easy to make Annie Wilkes Midwest mania and rage look like another member of Leatherface's family. You could have made this as some over-the-top Eli Roth torture porn, as you suggested, Jacob. But I think the smart choice, the one that you appreciate like a fine wine is that the mature choice is I'm not going to fall to those juvenile tropes of blood and what have you. And I'm going to focus on character. This is a character piece. And I do think particularly with Kathy Bates performance, it's a good one. So yeah, a very solid recommend. I do think that this is one of the best Stephen King movie adaptations. Yeah. Like you said, we've done what? 60 some King films. And this is easily in the top five for me. And I have it as six. And the reason is the performances and the directing. I got to give Reiner a lot of credit here in that this is a tough tale to adapt. When you read the book, a guy and a woman in a room together, and it's all from the guy's point of view as the hostage... It's daunting to try to make that cinematic. It's daunting to try to make that visual and put it on the screen. And they've pulled it off. And Kathy Bates is a godsend to them. That they wrote it for her and that she was able to deliver what she did. She doesn't like violence. Apparently, she actually had real trouble with the fighting scenes. She complained. She won an Oscar. And years later, she complained. Yeah, that scene where he banged my head into the ground, even with the rubber pad, it gave me a headache and then my brain shook around. She did not like the violence at all, but she really embodied this character. It helps, I think, that she was an unknown. I really do, that we weren't able to see other things with her the way we were able to see with Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Bette Midler, again, that would have been a killer. We couldn't have gotten Divine Miss M out of our head. I am the hammer on your foot. (laughs) (laughs) I could do a whole riff on this. Did you ever know that I'm your fan, girl? I'm surprised that when looking at my favorite King story, that one so high would be one without monsters, without supernatural abilities, and without a large cast of characters. On the plus side, it's also without greasers. <laughs> That's a nice change of pace. Mm-hmm. But it is a very, very strong, strong recommend for Misery. But yeah, I mean, it's a story that for me, when I'm reading the book, I think it's something that would work as a stage play. You know, it's one set. You just get two people up on stage and perform that way instead of a cinematic experience. Reiner... Prove me wrong. 
Yeah, you saw it on Broadway. I was kind of envious. On paper, I actually love this casting. Laurie Metcalf, who comes from Chicago Steppenwolf Theater, that's no small shakes in the realm of stage performance, she played the Kathy Bates role, and Bruce Willis kind of makes sense as the writer that is... So Bruce Willis did do this? Yeah, yeah. He apparently did it on Broadway for a couple weeks. Like Broadway, Broadway, or off-Broadway? No, Broadway, Broadway. Okay. I went... It was the second time that it was turned into a play. It had been in a play based on the book, but not on the movie in 1992 in London. And it's worth pointing out, we're saying play. This is not Carrie the Musical. Nobody is singing. Bruce is not going to be Bruno. But I have to say I was a little bit disappointed. The best thing about the play was its stage. There are three sets, not one. There's the living room of Annie's house or kind of the kitchen area. There's the bedroom. And then there's the front door. And the sheriff does show up at the house at a certain point, as is in the book. And some of that takes place at the front door. You'll see Annie go out the front door and Paul is in bed, Bruce Willis. It was a rotating stage. And so it was it had this circle that was in three triangles, each that did a different set which was very cool because you'd see Bruce Willis crawl out the door of the bedroom into the living room and the stage would rotate on him and things. My disappointment was, first of all, Bruce is no James Caan. Ouch. (laughs) I think he is. Come on, they're about (laughs) equivalent as actors. He didn't give very much. I didn't get a whole lot from Bruce. I was actually more excited to see Bruce Willis perform in person than Laurie Metcalf, who I know from Roseanne and Scream 2 and Lady Bird. And Laurie Metcalf is a passable Annie, but the problem was, and maybe it's because, you know, I saw this play in 2015, the movie was 25 years old, maybe it's because of the age, but they didn't take the material seriously. What they did was turn it into a comedy. Every time Annie was crazy, she was screaming cock-a-doody and things, the audience was laughing, Bruce would eye-roll and give some sardonic asides. From beginning to end, you were intended to smile and have fun with it. At no point did Metcalf come off as even as terrifying as she did in Scream 2, which wasn't very... I don't even remember Scream 2, but that's that's too bad because I can assure you she has the capability to be as good as Kathy Bates on stage. Metcalf was nominated for a Tony for Mm -hmm. it, so people did enjoy it, and I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I'm just saying I wish there was a little bit more pathos to it and a little bit less humor. Certainly. I would I would be mad if they turned it into Evil Dead, the, the Broadway play. That's You don't want it to be about the spatter and the leg break. And it wasn't. Although I was very... I was really paying attention because I wanted to know how they did the leg break. And I couldn't tell. Their stage magic they used... I couldn't tell at what point that wasn't Bruce Willis's actual leg that was going to get broken and things. They did a great job with that. The set decoration and everything was incredible. But overall, I left and I'm not a musical guy. I've dissed Broadway musicals. I do really like some Broadway plays I have seen. And this one, I'd give it a weak recommend. I mean, I wouldn't not recommend it. Okay. I just wished it had been a little bit more true to the material instead of winking at the audience. Okay. 
I'm glad you liked it, but it sounds like you didn't like it a whole lot. And maybe a lot of that had to do with the fact that they didn't find something relevant in 2015. It was the same old thing, but done on stage. They have taken Annie Wilkes and done something new and very contemporary in the new season of Castle Rock. I don't know if you guys watched that Hulu series. Is that where they take all of Stephen King's stuff and put it in the same show? Well, I thought that's what they were doing. I thought it was the Twin Peaks land of Stephen King plot points and characters, but I don't know. That first season was horrible. A lot of people love it. I mean, I'm in some Stephen King forums. They say nothing but good about it, but I have not had time to get to it. I really wanted to because I heard Annie Wilkes was having a prequel in Castle Rock season two. I haven't seen it. Tell me about it. Yeah, I did not want to go back for season two. And the only reason I did was we were doing Misery and I felt I owed it to see how you might adapt, remake the character. You're right. It is a prequel. They are setting her up so that she will meet Paul Sheldon at the very end of the 10 episode arc. And I don't want to spoil too much, but they also have a subplot that involves Salem's Lot and some weird characters that aren't vampires, but have a supernatural bent going on. So you will have Annie working with supernatural and they're kind of telling her story. And there is also a daughter character. They have introduced the idea that Annie has a child and that gives her someone to play off of, who's played by Elsie Fitcher, who stole a lot of hearts last year with the movie Eighth Grade, if you saw that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's really kind of the heart of this movie in that she is... She's Annie's daughter? Yeah, she's trying to deal with a mother that has kind of, yes, been dragging her town to town, having to leave in scandal because people have died at the hospital where she worked. And she finally has decided she's going to take her stand in Castle Rock as other things happen. I was surprised at how much I was involved this time. I think that it ultimately you could just start here. It does have ties to the first season. There is a twist that comes late that will never justify, but uh, try to correct things that were very boring about the season one and give it a little bit more stakes. I thought it worked. And I thought that even though I wouldn't necessarily watch a season three, if you are a fan of Misery, the story is told well here. So give it a shot. I'll definitely watch it before I do Books and Nachos on this in 2023. Realistic Expectations. Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of backlog to get to before I get to misery. I know. (laughs) I look forward to those. I really do enjoy them. And I do think that, yeah, people would love to hear your thoughts on the novel, which is, again, this is the rare example where I actually feel like you should do both. Read the book and see the movie. One is not better than the other. They complement each other really well. And I think that the whole experience would be more satisfying than just doing one. I agree. I think I got a lot more out of the movie this time with the book fresh in my mind than previously where I had read the book and watched the movie, but so far apart that they didn't really influence each other. I think they do go hand in hand. And and so next up, what do we have? Is it Tommyknockers? My memory is Tommyknockers. Tommyknockers is the next novel, and there was a TV miniseries with Jimmy Smith that I never was able... Again, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the TV miniseries. I couldn't do the book. I couldn't do Stephen King anymore after this. It really soured real quick, and I went from being a super fan to wanting to have nothing to do with him. Well, if this makes any difference, I had watched and read many Stephen King after... 
1990. I couldn't finish Tommy Knockers the book. I couldn't pay attention to the second night of Tommy Knockers the miniseries. I remember kind of glancing. I remember being really excited. You guys know I'm an LA Law fan. Jimmy Smith's. You guys know I like porn. Tracy Lords. Really? Wow, I didn't even remember that detail. What a perfect movie for you then. <laughs> Stephen King. Throw it all in a blender. How could it not be delicious? And I remember I was in college, and by the second night, I had it on, but I think I was preferring to do homework than finish watching Jimmy Smith's pull his tooth out in front of a mirror. Mm, yeah, I, I have no memory about what it The Ghosts of Aliens is the vague plot that I semi-sort <laughs> of remember, but I remember feeling like I didn't want to... Like, English class had changed me. I would have rather read Scarlet Letter from that point on than to read his half-assed, throw everything into the Cuisinart, I don't care about my fans. Yeah, the writing just, it felt sloppy, but I could be wrong. You know what? I hope I'm wrong. I hope when I see the miniseries, the next time we come back to King, I'm giving it a green arrow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that was possible, but I can always hope. I mean, again, I'm not a hater. I'm not out to destroy the man's work. I want him to excel and be at his best. But I don't believe anyone ever says Tommy Knockers is Stephen King at his best. No, it was before the stand and after it and had those middle child symptoms. But we'll get to it sometime in 2020. In the meantime, this Friday and Sunday, we still have a grudge to hold. It's beginning to end, and it's the final curse. Two of the last Japanese Juon movies are being covered both this weekend as the new American film The Grudge opens up. And so it's all coming to a head. If you want horror, this is going to be a lot more gory. I can promise you that. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support throughout all of 2019. We go into a 2020 that's going to be I think even a bigger year for us so many movies coming up new series things we're very excited for it's because of you guys who listen and who donated throughout 2019 we're able to keep the momentum going to our 1000th show we're going to be hitting this year Bowser. so Jacob Stewart thank you for watching and reviewing with me and now we've put you out of your misery When you first came here, I only loved the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Book's almost finished. Your legs are getting better. Soon you'll be wanting to leave. Why would I leave? I like it here. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Would great be insulting? I can live with great. It's not just great, it's perfect. A perfect, perfect thing. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. What do you expect to find? A story about a guy who drove his car off a cliff in a snowstorm? And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, 
Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. I think he was suggesting I dredge up the worst horror of my life just so we could make a few bucks. <laughs> In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I could give you a couple of hundred and you could tell me what you think. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We're put on this earth to help people, Paul, like I'm trying to help you. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. If I can make this work, I might just have something I want on my tombstone. Associate produced by Jason. Yeah, work, work, work. Now playing is edited by Arnie. You know damn well what I've been doing. I've been sitting here suffering. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Forgive me for prattling away and making you feel all oogie. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Sometimes my thinking is a little muddy. I accept that. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. I know that, Mr. Man! All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. There is a justice higher than that of man. I will be judged him. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You and I were meant to be together forever. Now our time in this world must end. I loved Weathering Heights and the Scarlet Pimpernel, but I don't think I ever aged out of King. Scarlet Letter. Nope, Scarlet Pimpernel. Scarlet Pimpernel is about a spy. Scar That's what I read. I do believe my English teacher fucked up and couldn't <laughs> read the facts and saw the Scarlet something. Every other school read the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. My English teacher had me read the Scarlet Pimpernel. No, Hester Prynne. Like, it's an important book, whether you like it or not. But Yeah, I never read the Scarlet Letter because we read the Scarlet Pimpernel instead, and I like that little 1800s superhero story. Just don't see the Debbie Moore movie. That's all I got to say. <laughs> the Scarlet Pimpernel or the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> Scarlet Letter. Or maybe do. It is one of my favorite bad movies. I mean, we got Stanley Kubrick with The Shining, Robert, not Robert Palmer, Brian De Palma with <laughs> Robert De Palmer. <laughs>
Brian Arnold De Palmer, he, he knocked a three birdie. It was great. Don't yeah. know what it has to do with King, but it was an amazing shot. Robert Palmer. I'm just trying to imagine what a Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer, yeah. Did he have a bunch of chicks with sunglasses behind him? A lot of women with like white pancake makeup sauntering around. I could see that instead of the twins in the shining. He turns the corner, there's four identical gyrating women. The murders get a lot more detail in the novelization. Novelization. The movies do get a lot more detail. The murders. Nobody is singing. Bruce is not going to be Bruno. Unfortunately. Although I did take my Return of Bruno LP for him to sign after the play. (laughs) Did he sign it? I got a signed playbill, but I didn't pull out the record. Ah! Almost done.